Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Karen Frank is the president of Cow USA and has overall responsibility for the Japanese consumer product giant's operations in the Americas and Europe. An 11-year veteran of Cow, Karen previously filled dual roles as general manager of U.S. sales and marketing and Europe innovation for the mass channel. In today's interview, Lippy Taylor CEO Paul Dyer talks to Karen about what she's learned throughout the course of her career of consumer marketing and how she's had to pivot in the midst of 2020. In the interview, Karen talks about why having a brand that really speaks to the consumer is more important than ever before, as well as what newly minted professional communicators can bring to the game. She also gets into the risks of not taking a stand on important issues. Here, without further ado, is Cal President Karen Frank in conversation with Lippy Taylor CEO. Paul Dyer. This is Paul Dyer, CEO at Lippy Taylor and Shop PR. Today I have with me here Karen Frank, who is the president for mass business for the Americas in Europe at Cow. Um, thank you for joining us, Karen. Sure, happy to be here. Um, in terms of just kind of jumping into it, there's a there's a um, a big topic of discussion right now in our business is related to diversity and inclusion. Um, and that obviously has had a big focus from a, um, a racial standpoint, but also from gender. And you are the first woman to hold this senior position at Cal. Um, and Jesse Grissom is um, president of operations at Cal, the first time someone who's an African-American has held that senior level position. Um, so I'm curious, can you can you tell us a little bit about um, do these are these hires reflective of Cal's dedication to diversity and inclusion, or um, do you want to maybe shed a little bit of light on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, if people don't know who Cal is, Cal is a Japanese-owned company. It's often called kind of the PNG of Japan. We don't love that, but that helps people understand that we're across a lot of categories, usually number one in our categories in Japan, and trying to increase our global kind of image and footprint. Yeah, so working for a Japanese company, I think it's extremely telling that they put a woman and a black man in charge of you know the organization right now. And it isn't that they went out and hired us. I've been with the company for 11 years. So the commitment to develop me to eventually get into this position. And Jesse's been with the company a lot longer. I don't even know for sure, but I think it's going on 20 years. So it isn't that they ran out and tried to check the boxes, right, and hire people for these jobs that looked right. It really was the commitment to develop us. And it just is great that we've gotten to a point, again, with a Japanese-owned company, they feel comfortable having their leadership be as diverse as it is. I want to also mention that it's not just Jesse and I. We actually have a woman that heads up our R&D organization. And we have women that are both the head of HR in the Americas and in Europe. That's wonderful. It's really exciting to hear. Um, and speaking of it being a Japanese company, you running the Americas. So you have been in the unenviable position of launching a new brand in the middle of a pandemic with Mike What was that like? And, um, you know, you guys obviously were able to sort of add some some purpose elements to your launch plan. So maybe would you like to share a little bit about that? Sure, I'd love to. 
Yeah, I, I think the conventional wisdom was don't launch brands during the pandemic. But I think if you launch brands that are really speaking to the consumer right now, it almost doesn't matter when you launch them. And we had from the beginning really wanted to launch on Amazon first because we wanted to have space to tell our story. So as you mentioned, it definitely is more of a purpose-driven brand and definitely about ESG components. So very environmentally friendly, clean formulas, the packaging, if you haven't seen it, it starts out in this very, very, very thin foil. It's called an air bottle and then blows up, but the waste is then very, very little. And so for traditional bottles, it's you know 50 to 80% less plastic. And so it's, it's really cool on that front, but it's also different in that it incorporates a lot of elements from Japan. And so our formulas are made there. They are inspired with Japanese ingredients and just the simplicity that Japan has as a society. So we're not looking for this line to have 10 different shampoos and 10 different body washes, but really kind of either a few that really are what consumers need and no more is what we like to say. It's, it's a simple line. So it's environmentally responsible, it's simple, and it's really cool because it has a lot of the Japanese elements as well. That and it had hand wash, which is, you know, during a pandemic, the hand washing segment has gone crazy. So I think we were lucky on that one, but that is in the product line as well. So you've mentioned now some innovations that have come out of Japan. Um, you also have the 1819 Innovation Hub at the University of Cincinnati, where Cow's um, U.S. headquarters are. Um, can you talk a little bit about that partnership and maybe um, what you're, you're hoping to do with that Innovation Hub? Yeah. So we made a commitment along with several other companies to support the UC 1819 Innovation Hub. And so what it gives you is amazing, cool collaboration space. It gives you the ability to interact with other companies since it's, you know, a lot of different companies in the space, but then it also gives you access to a lot of the university's assets and probably most importantly, the faculty and the students. So you can get the students to brainstorm different projects for you. We had them look at Biori packaging and say, hey, re-envision this. What would you do coming up from your perspective if we wanted to get out of the box and do something totally different? So you give these kids amazing projects. And then of course, you also get to meet these students, interact with them and potentially find new talent for the future. On a personal note, my father was the provost at the University of Cincinnati and he started the business honors program there, the Linder Business Honors Program. And so I helped him start that program. We mentored students. We got students to stay in Cincinnati because they were the best and the brightest, especially going back to the first question you asked me the high diversity students that were just high potential were going to all these other amazing universities. So he developed the program and really kept a lot of that talent in Cincinnati. So I have obviously tremendous respect and affirmation, love for that university as well. So innovation runs in the family, it sounds like. It does a little bit, yeah, in different ways, but yes. Um, so one of the things that you just sort of started touching on, you opened the door to um, you know, graduating students. And this is a time when a lot of people are graduating um, where their future plans have been disrupted. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of them are asking, what should I be doing to make myself uh, more marketable? Are there new skills that I should be investing in? Are there different you know, opportunities I should, be, I should be looking for, different ways I should be thinking about making myself 
a, a hireable person. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? What advice would you give them? Sure. Well, first of all, I have a 28-year-old who works at Kraft Heinz. I have a 26-year-old who works at Anheuser-Busch. <laughs> and then I still have a college student um, at Ohio State. So I completely understand this question. And my son's internship got disrupted this summer with COVID. So the office shut down. So, you know, you had to pivot and find other work. And I think that's, that's going to be the message. I mean, first of all, be able to pivot, be adaptable for sure. Um, things just aren't going to look like maybe you thought they would be when you started college. And that's okay. I mean, I, I think it's an exciting time. It's a challenging time. And there's so much potential and space for growth still. And if you look at e-commerce, you look to DTC, you look at you know, social commerce, you look at all these spaces that are just wildly growing right now. And you think, okay, we need the young people that are digital natives that know how to do this and just consider it sort of their way of life, right? This is how they shop. This is how they search. This is how they learn. This is how they think. You know, I think if you find yourself someone who has all those skills, I think you're going to be super marketable. I know the market's, you know, tough right now, but we're still hiring. We're still looking for people and we're looking for people with those kinds of capabilities that can help us. I mean, some of us older folks are having to learn all this as we go. These guys are growing up with it. So I feel like, you know, we're getting more and more younger people in the organization. And I think, again, going back to that UC 1819, why we want to interact with more young folks as we're doing any kind of innovation. A great example of also sort of, you know, not just the talent pipeline, but keeping your finger on the pulse of, you know, what's trending and things like that. Definitely. As you think about um, staying on top of trends and, you know, the role that plays in innovation, um, how do you think about sort of the balance between, uh, you know, observing what's happening in the world um, versus like, tried and true research, studying the consumer data and analytics, like how do you balance those two things? Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. I feel like intuition has never been more important. <laughs> and I think, you know, all the data in the world, in my opinion, doesn't trump somebody who's got amazing intuition of the future. And I think, you know, those softer skills and your emotional intelligence and you know, really trying to understand where the consumer is going are some of those softer skills. I mean, data, of course, has its place and it's super important, but I feel like people can get lost in the data and get lost in the minutia and not take the time to kind of step out of it and see the bigger picture. We've had innovations that have been more successful because we repositioned what it was versus we came with a brand new technology that maybe clinically was a little bit better than something else or, you know, it, and it was largely done on intuition. Our most successful innovation of this year was largely done on innovation or in intuition. So for me, you know, I, I just feel like there's obviously a balance you need both, but I feel like that's, that's so important because it's not just about, you know, following the consumer. It's also about creating that inspiration. So maybe you create your own trend or you create your own need or you reposition something differently and all of a sudden it appeals to a group of consumers that maybe it didn't appeal to before. I think you need to look at trends and understand when to leverage them, when to jump in, when to create your own and when to pivot a little bit off of the trend and do something different. That's great. And obviously when, you know, you talk about your intuition, but, you know, 11 years now and, you know, deep, deep in the business, 
it's different when you have a level of expertise and experience um, behind the intuition, of course. Yeah. Uh, there's, we're not going into politics here, but there's a lot being said <laughs> about the Dunning-Kruger effect and how everybody yeah. become an expert based on their yeah. opinion. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, but your opinion really obviously is informed by more than just, um, you know, sort of a passing fancy. Um, so I guess when, when you think about, um, you know, generations and marketing across generations, this is something that comes up a lot right now. Are we marketing to millennials or making Gen Z? Are we forgetting about the boomers or Gen X or like, and then there's a whole line of thinking that says, you know, it's more about life stage. The generations aren't that different. Um, or it's about being a connected consumer versus et cetera. There's all kinds of different ways of thinking about it, you know, but hearing you talk, I'm, I'm curious, you know, kind of what the filters are that you, that you put on um, these kinds of innovations, right? You're, you're obviously processing them through some sort of a, a, a way of thinking. So what are the filters that you tend to, you know, um, gravitate towards? I've been in this industry for like 30 years. So yeah, I think, you know, you develop intuition, right? But I think for me, I, I see stuff and does it hit me immediately as a wow? Um, I see so much packaging and I'll use that as an example. And I'll be like, yeah, that's good. And then something will come on the screen. And I'm like, wow. I mean, is that really, truly different? If you saw it on the shelf, would it catch your attention? You know, does it look like, you know, everything else in the category or will it stand out? Can you shop it? So, I mean, I think there's a lot of those filters that I use, but I think for me, the very first filter is my own emotional reaction. How am I reacting to this? And probably second is, you know, the team. You can tell when a team presents something to you, if they're super excited about it. And, you know, if their consumers are super excited about it, they can't wait to present it to you. So if it's something that maybe doesn't appeal directly to me, I'll still use my filters, but I'm also really listening to what the teams are saying and what they've learned from their consumer. We have a concept here called Gemba, which is a Japanese term. And that means living close with the consumer. So we believe the consumer is the boss. We believe we have to stay very close with her, whether that's virtually or you know, in person, however we can do it. Um, but she is our boss and we have to do things that are gonna delight her, surprise her, and hopefully make her fall in love with what we have to offer. The consumer is your boss. I love that. Um, so don't tell my boss that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every now and then, I, I would I would argue we all have more than one boss. Yeah, I definitely do. Yeah, definitely. But ultimately, you know, it's like you know when the actresses say, "Hey, there's there's fans, right? If I didn't have fans, I wouldn't be here. If we didn't have consumers that loved our products, we wouldn't be here." So I have to have that filter on probably more than anything. So I'm curious in your position overseeing, you know, the larger business, um, you have obviously marketing and communications underneath you. How do you think about the relationship between the two um, and how they either, you know, live on separate tracks or complement each other or, you know, like the role of marketing and communications in terms of, you know, um, supporting your business? Do you mean communications in terms of content? asset development, uh, things like that, or? Like uh, public relations, so brand PR versus oh, okay. marketing. Yeah, so just so you know, I have sales, I have marketing, I have PR, I have sort of everything marketing and everything commercial under me. So how do I think it's different than marketing and PR? I mean, I think a lot of those lines are blurred. I don't know if there's, 
you know, if you need to have such defined lines anymore. I think it used to be, well, PR is all about what you earn and marketing is all about, you know, what you pay for. And it's just, you know, not true anymore. I feel like a lot of what we do from a public relations standpoint, whether it's through influencers, you know, talking for us, and sometimes they can talk better than we can about our brands and products. You know, I guess some people would put that in PR, some people would put that in marketing. I don't know. I, I think those those lines are blurred. It's all about how do you get the best information out to your consumers? And whether it's editors speaking for us or influencers speaking for us or us speaking for ourselves, it's all got to be resonating with the consumer and reaching her at a point and through a credible you know, voice who she listens to and who she wants to learn from. I got to tell you, I'm feeling left out here with all this talk about she, the <laughs> consumer. I know. 85% of purchases are done by women. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's all right. Maureen Lippi founded our company on that very premise. Oh, so okay. I, I have to agree with you. Um, so you guys are launching a new Walmart exclusive skin smoothies collection this fall with a program centered around National Positive Attitude Month in October. Um, can you talk about this notion of mood boosting and positivity um, within this product's kind of go-to-market strategy? Sure, I mean, I have to give Walmart some credit here too. I almost think of this one as being co-developed. I happened to be in the Walmart call when we were meeting with the buyer at the time and she's looking at HBL and she said, it looks like it was designed by an accountant and not to offend any accountants out there, <laughs> but you know, she was kind of right. And you know, there's been a lot of disruption in hair care and there just wasn't as much in HBL. So we started to look at the job to be done to really delight consumers. And so we started with our body butters, which are lavender and rose and I don't know, vanilla. And so those were just really cool kind of body creams and tubes. And then we thought, you know, the younger consumer would really like something that is sort of delightful and, and, you know, aspirational as well. So instead of just using the normal white or champagne or blue bottle, we really went out there and said, okay, how do we make the experience really fun and really enjoyable, especially for that younger shopper? And so hopefully if you've seen the skin smoothies, it's a concept that was, you know, because of the health and the smoothies that you drink. Um, and it just really resonated with consumers and the packaging's really colorful. It's really bright. It's really beautiful. And hopefully it'll, it'll break through the category. That's great. So you've, you've mentioned a couple times now things related to the, you know, the, the core realities of shopper marketing, your big retailers, packaging, shelf presence. Um, and yet, of course, here we are in this very disrupted world um, with a lot of people social distancing, working from home. So how have your, chan, your, your plans changed based on so many Americans and Europeans um, you know, being at home? And are they permanent changes or is it something that, you know, you see us returning back to some semblance of how things were, um, you know, next year or in the future? Yeah, so I think, I think a lot of the changes will be permanent. I'm not saying everybody that has changed how they shop will continue to shop that way. But I certainly think a lot of folks that maybe weren't doing e-commerce or weren't doing click and collect or weren't doing Instacart, you know, and try it, it's really convenient. <laughs> and so I think there'll be a lot that do stick with it. Um, 
have we changed marketing? Well, I mean, we're still in disruption. I mean, you still have to be disruptive, whether it's the virtual shelf or it's, you know, virtual or social communications or traditional communications. Your packaging still has to be a wow. It still has to grab their attention, whether they're on the screen or in the store. So I think a lot of those, those principles still really do apply. And I do think, you know, this e-commerce thing has advanced us. People have been saying it's, you know, five years ahead of where we expected it to be, but I don't think it's slowing down. And so I think we've got to continue to adjust and continue to think of the virtual shelf, maybe even first before we think of the brick and mortar shelf or at least equal parts. What are your thoughts on brands taking a stand these days? Um, is it an expectation? Is it something that is, you know, they're rewarded for um, or not? Um, you know, what do you what do you think? Yeah, I think it's definitely expected. <laughs> I think if you are silent, then you're saying a whole lot. So I think it is expected. I think is it rewarded? Well, sometimes it's re- rewarded. Sometimes it's punished. <laughs> I think it really depends on. Is it authentic? You know, are you really being true to either what that brand stands for or what your consumers stand for? And honestly, even when you do take a stand and you feel like it's really the right stand and how can anybody argue with this? There's always going to be people that can argue with everything. And so I think it's always a risk for a brand to take a stand. So I think maybe in the past, people have shied or brands have shied away from it. I just don't think we have that luxury anymore. So... I would love to hear just your advice for people in terms of the capabilities or the mindsets or the approaches that you think brands of the future will need to embrace and brand marketers of the future will need to embrace um, in order to be successful in the future. Sure. Well, I grew up at PNG and I learned a ton there. Um, but I think the future is all about yeah, you still need some of those core skills and those core experiences. But I I really think adaptability and learning, continuous learning. I mean, I find myself reading more. I find myself, you know, just trying to keep up more than ever. And I think just wanting to be somebody that is always about learning and getting better will be so important, but also someone that can learn and then take action. I mean, we can't learn for theory. You have to learn for action and really not be afraid of risk. And in today's world, you know, as I said, being silent says something, being slow says something. And if you're not willing to take some risk at the pace things are moving, you're just going to continue to get passed by. So I I, I do think it's going to have to be, it's measured risk, but we still have to learn how to take more risk. So that's sort of what I've at least seen in the last uh, year or so. That's great. Now I have to ask you, putting you on the spot a little bit. So if you don't have one top of mind, it's all right. But you, you mentioned reading to stay current. I mean, is there is there a, a yeah. great book you've had you've read recently that you would recommend? Well, I mean, I read a lot, but the Building Distinctive Assets just happened to be the last one. Okay. Um, yeah, but I probably read more than anything. I read blogs. Sorry, <laughs> blogs. I listen to stuff as I work out. I know. I'm so sorry. I told Nick that I'm going to read it. I'm going to, you know, when I go on my elliptical the next time, it's going to be damn good brands. But I, I, I feel like I um, also just read fiction because I think, I just think reading broadens your mind. I mean, I'm an avid reader, whether it's about my marketing or whether it's about business or it's just about 
okay, let's just read and it gets you thinking about different things that lets you escape. And sometimes really cool things happen when you do that. So I'm definitely not just a person who reads um, the business books. Well, that sounds very, very exciting. And thank you for your time and your insights um, and your advice. I think that people will really get a lot out of listening to this. And we uh, appreciate you um, being so generous with your time and thoughts. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right. I know you have a 1.30. Good talking to you. <laughs> you too. I, oh, geez. Did I leave you? Are you still there? I'm okay, still there you are. Um, yeah, no, I, I was telling Nick I would love to spend a little bit more time with you guys, learn a little bit more about your organization, because I know right now you do bio, you do Jurgens. I've heard really good things. So I didn't know you guys before this, and I would love to spend a little bit more time getting to know you guys. Um, Stephanie can help with that or, you know, Carla or whoever you work with normally. Great. Well, we'll follow up and set it up. We're like the only two men in the company. It's just a coincidence that we're the ones on the call. So we'll, <laughs> we'll set it up and follow up with, with more people from the team. Sounds good. Thank you guys so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Here are some key takeaways from this conversation with Karen Frank. Number one, launch a brand at any time, as long as it connects to the consumer. Cal went against convention by launching the MyCurray line in the middle of the upheaval caused by COVID. MyCurray didn't get buried as some irrelevant introduction because it combined performance with purpose. By incorporating environmental sustainability and a concern for the greater good, MyCurray managed to stand out even in a world consumed by a global health crisis. The brand was a success despite launching during COVID because it was meaningful. Number two, new college graduates have in-demand 21st century communications DNA. If product marketers understandably are nervous about launching products during COVID, it's understandable that graduates are going to feel despondent about the future of communications. This doesn't have to be the case, though, because by virtue of their upbringing as the first truly digital from birth generation, today's graduates have unmatched insight into the communication standards and platforms of the day. By leveraging that, they can launch satisfying and successful careers despite the shaky economy. Number three, balance respect for intuition with knowledge derived from data. Beyond a doubt, big data gets more headlines these days than any insight derived from sources such as personal intuition. But that may be more due to the newness of data as a key tool for communicators rather than to any real weakness of intuition. In reality, hunches have a role to play in providing a backstop to the results of analyzing data. That is, if the data says something that should make you say, wow, and instead you say, meh, the data might be misleading. Never underestimate the power of your intuition as a marketer. Match it with using data for some real breakthroughs. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And on Twitter at the same handle. To learn more about Lippy Taylor, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. 
Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.